Good morning, church. As we continue this morning in the book of Romans, chapter 15 this morning, we are almost to the end of our time in this book. I hope it's been profitable for you. I know it has been for me as your pastor. And as we look at Romans 15 this morning, Paul is beginning to draw this powerful letter to a close. This this letter that for the first 11 chapters has been the most beautiful, intricate, powerful description of the gospel of Jesus Christ we could find anywhere. He has displayed for us what it looks like when a God of love and holiness comes seeking after lost sinners like you and me, coming to rescue us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, that was poured out at the cross for us. As we consider those things, when we come to chapter 12, and Paul begins to lay out for us that this gospel that we rejoice in is not just something that we receive, but it is something that we must, if we've received it, do something with. It's a practical gospel, not just a doctrinal gospel. It's a gospel that not just affects the way that we believe, but it produces uh, different kinds of behaviors in us. It changes the way we live. That's why in Romans 12, 2, it says, let's not be conformed to the ways of this world, but let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we, may not, we might know the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. As we come toward the end of this book here in chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul begins to bring out a new theme that has kind of been hiding in the background for the first 14 chapters. And this new theme is a theme of hope. It's a great way to end this book as we've talked about the gospel, what it is, and now what it does, what it produces in our lives. It produces in us hope. Now, when you think about the word hope in biblical terms, you want to think about it a little differently than the way we generally use that word in our culture. Like in my household, uh, my wife might say something like, I hope we have pizza for dinner tonight. Now, because she's my wife, uh, she probably will get pizza for dinner tonight if that's what she says. But she may not. Okay, that for a variety of circumstances, that hope might remain unfulfilled. And then there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth until it is fulfilled. Not by her, just by the children. But there's... There's a place where we can say, I hope, and it means a hope so. Well, I don't know that this is going to happen, but I'm really hoping that it's going to. I'm looking forward to it. I have an emotional attachment to it. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's radically different. When the Bible speaks about our hope, it speaks about not a hope so, but a certainty, an assuredness. And when the Bible speaks about a hope, It's a hope that's grounded in the very nature and character of God, so much so that you don't have to question it. It's not like, are we going to have pizza for dinner tonight? This is grounded in our faith, grounded in God's love for us. It is a certainty and an assuredness. And so we're going to talk about this morning the gospel of hope. The good news that we have hope in Jesus Christ and a hope that is an assuredness that will surely be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. His love made manifest in our lives. We will see the outworking of what God's been doing in Jesus in and through 
our lives. And so we begin there in verse, verses 1 through 7. We're going to talk about for a few minutes our example in the gospel. Now, in various ones of Paul's letters, he loves to look back to the example of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 that we'll see in a few minutes this morning is a great example of that, that he loves to point to Christ and say, here's what the Christian life is all about. In fact, in fact, this morning, if you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? In our culture today, it's so often viewed, Christians are viewed as those who don't do certain things. And, you know, the old Baptist adage, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't hang out with those who do, okay? We, 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 we hear that kind of thing, and we are known in our culture as those who are opposed to certain things. We're uh, against abortion. We're against the homosexual movement. We're against, and you can just fill in the blank of the things that we are known for being against. And yet the Bible describes us not as a people who are against certain things or who live in opposition to certain things, but a people who behave in a certain way and live for the glory of God to show the love of Christ to others. And so our example in that is none other than, none other than Jesus himself. And we're going to look at his example here in these first seven verses. Paul is holding up Jesus and saying, here's, here's what it means to be a Christian. Look to Jesus. Walk in his footsteps. Love people like Jesus loved people. Treat people the way Jesus treated people. Hold to the doctrines of our faith the way that Jesus did. Keep primary things primary, as we talked about last week. Keep primary things primary and keep secondary things secondary. Walk in. Think about what it means to follow someone. You're walking in their footsteps, doing as they do, seeking to be as they are. Christ is our example. In what ways? Let's look at verses 1 through 3. He is our example in that He became the supreme sacrifice for us. This is the first 11 chapters of Romans summed up in a few verses here that Christ came to become the ultimate sacrifice, not just to make the ultimate sacrifice. There's a difference in that. You need to understand this morning. It's one thing for somebody to make the ultimate sacrifice of giving their lives, but Jesus went a step farther and actually became the ultimate sacrifice for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin of his own became sin for us. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So it's more than just a doing that Jesus did. He actually became this supreme sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is top shelf stuff for the Christian life. You want to say, what's the Christian life all about? Here it is. He said, I delivered you of what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. We're going to come back to that thought in a minute. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the source and center of the Christian life. We have been labeled as those who don't do this and don't do that. But the source and center of the Christian life is Jesus Christ. Following Him, talking as He talked, loving as He loved, walking as He walked, treating others as He treated others. And we see this example here. He gave us a tool in this verse 4. It is Christ who gave us 
the sanctifying scriptures. Look here at verse 4. This is a great word from the word of God about the word of God. For whatever was written in former days, he's, re- he's re- responding there, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for what? For our instruction. So what's the Old Testament for? Actually, what's all of the Scripture for? It's meant to teach us. It's meant to set before us the example of Christ. How would you know how to walk as Christ walked if it were not put on display in the Word? You wouldn't. And you would define it as so many are today however you well pleased. Liberals love to talk about loving as Jesus loved. They've just completely redefined it in their own way, in a, in a way of tolerance, not biblical love. By the way, many of us conservatives don't do any better. We redefine the way Jesus lived in terms of our legalism, whereas Christ came to set us free from that. Verse 4, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, that's a pressing on, uh, a moving forward, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have, and there's our key word, what is it? Hope. The Scriptures were written to give us hope to give us an assurance that that which we are trusting in, in Jesus Christ, will bear out every ounce that God has promised. The Scriptures were given for this purpose, and they were given to sanctify us. They were given to make us like Christ. It's in the Scriptures and through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He's given us these two tools, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And when those come together in the lives of believers, powerful things begin to happen. And so we see here, He's given us these Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, all Scriptures breathed out by God. You've probably heard this verse before. And profitable for what? Same thing. Romans 14, 15, 4 says, for teaching, for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But here's the purpose. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the Bible was not given to us to make us biblical fatheads. The Bible was not given to us just so that we might have a knowledge of God of which we make absolutely no application. The Bible was given to us to instruct us, to grow us in our faith, to show us what it means to follow after Jesus Christ, to love as He loved, and to do as He did. And so what are the priorities here? Look at verse 5. He begins to lay out three priorities of the Christ-centered life, of walking in the example of Christ. First of all, Christ is the source of our oneness. We keep coming back to this theme of unity over and over in these chapters because the Apostle Paul keeps coming back to this theme. We saw last week how there were many secondary issues that were dividing the church at Rome. Things that Paul was saying, these should not be dividing lines for you. Don't allow yourself to be divided over things that don't really matter. Focus on the things that do, and that will produce unity. So look at verse 5. May the God, it's a prayer for us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, may He grace you in this way, 
to live in such harmony with, such unity with, such oneness with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Again, look to Jesus. And you find that one of the primary things that Jesus wanted for us as his people was unity. You say, well, where do you see that at? Look at John 17. Jesus is praying for his people on the night that he was betrayed. He's going to be crucified the next day. He is praying for his disciples, those 12 men in that room. But he's also praying for those who would come as a result of their witness in days to come. And we are sitting here today because those 12 men were faithful to the task. Because they did not keep the gospel to themselves, but went out as his, as his, as his witnesses. Uh, the Greek word is the word martyrs, from which we get the word martyr. They went out and gave their very lives for the cause of Christ. And you are here today. If you're trusting in Christ today, you are here today standing on the shoulders of giants like these men who took seriously the call of Christ and would not keep the gospel to themselves. Jesus prayed in the night he was betrayed. He said, I do not ask for these, only for these disciples right here, these 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's why you're here today if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're here because they took this task seriously. That they may be, I, I pray for them, that they may be what? One. Notice what he says, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. But notice the purpose. Don't miss it. He is not praying for his church to have unity for the sake of unity. Far too many in the American church today would settle for unity for unity's sake. That's not what Jesus prays. He said that they may be perfectly one so that what? That the world may know that you sent me. And so Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. By the way you self-sacrificingly love one another. By the way that your love is not self-centered. By the way that your love does things that doesn't make any sense to the world. By the way that your love is costly. They will know that you're my disciples and they will be in awe. They will be in awe of this love that flows out and is attached to our unity. Christ is the source of our oneness. Next, Christ is the source of our worship. We come together. Look at verse 6. What a great description of what we're here to do this morning. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's already used the word harmony two verses prior. Think about harmony, those of you that are musical folks in the room, even if you're not. Man, you, it's wonderful to hear beautiful harmonies, voices singing different parts together that blend together, and they blend together as one voice. So it's different parts, sopranos, altos, tenors, basses coming together, different parts blending together, but it sounds as one powerful voice. And music lovers in the room, man, you love when this is happening. Now it's nails on a chalkboard when it's not. 
Okay, it is nails on a chalkboard when one of those parts is off a little bit. And so often that's what we see in our churches today. It, it sounds like nails on a chalkboard because one part or more are off from each other. But it's the responsibility of everyone to do their part in the body, to bring that harmony together and to sing with one voice to the glory of God. This is worship. I could say more about that, but let's move on. Next, Christ is the source of our welcome. He uses the key word there. I told you, look for the word therefore. It's a key word. It's like in the Old Testament when somebody says, behold, therefore is like behold in the New Testament. It's pay attention. There's something important here that's getting ready to be said. Therefore, verse 7, welcome one another. It almost seems like a letdown. Like, really? Are we talking about church greeters here? I mean, what we, <laughs> welcome one another. That, that seems like not the biggest thing in the world until you read on. Welcome one another how? As Christ has welcomed you. Let's pause for a minute and consider this question. How has Christ welcomed us? How has Christ welcomed us. You see, for most of us, we find it fairly simple and easy to welcome those who are like us. Those who are of the basic same socioeconomic level, similar education, similar background, that, that, that root for the same team, that vote in the same way, same, share the same kinds of ideologies and, and worldview things. Pretty, pretty easy to dress like us. It's pretty easy for us to welcome those who are like us. And sometimes we take that in our lives, and we begin to impose that upon the way that God has welcomed or accepted us. It's very easy to accept folks that are like you, especially if you like them. But how was it that Christ welcomed us? One old Baptist preacher said we always need to remember that Christ welcomed us as beggars at the king's table. As beggars at the king's table, that, that we have been welcomed in as those who were utterly unlike Christ. That we were living in open rebellion against him, and our sin had left us destitute, spiritually speaking. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says, Our sin had left us spiritually dead. There was nothing in us that was worthy of being able to draw near to the king's table, of being welcomed before the throne of God, of having access to God the Father through him, as Romans has laid out for us. There was nothing in us whatsoever. We came as beggars to the king's table table we couldn't have even gotten past the front gates if by the glory of the cross he had not flung wide the gates and welcomed us in to his presence we find it so easy to welcome those who are like us who measure up in some particular ways but here he's saying the lord welcomed you the king of kings and the lord of lords welcomed you as a beggar come to the king's table and he didn't make you sit over at the kid's table. He didn't make you sit over at his feet. He said, 
Come sit right next to me. Draw near to me, God says, and I'll draw near to you. You see, this will radically change the way that we relate to those who come into this place, who don't in the eyes of the world or even maybe in our own sinful eyes measure up. Who don't have the things that we think you ought to have to measure up that don't dress that way maybe their personal hygiene isn't quite what we think it ought to be that they they drop some four-letter words in their speech that we go we don't know what to do with that Uh, their political views are radically different than ours would be we really wrestle with that until we recognize that we are called upon to extend the kind of welcome that christ extended to us which was come to me All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come on in, beggars. Come on in, homeless. Come on in, those who have absolutely nothing to contribute. Come on in. Remember that parable that Jesus told about the wedding feast? He said there was a wedding feast that was happening, and the master of the feast, the, the Lord of the feast, had sent out invitations to all the popular people. They'd gone out to all the popular people, all the other lords and princes and princesses that had been invited to the feast, and yet all of them had an excuse. I'm too busy. I've got something on that day. I can't quite make it. I've got other things going on. My calendar's full. And none of them chose to come. And so what did the master of the feast do? He said to his servants, I want you to go out into the highways and the byways. I want you to go out into the alleys. I want you to to go to those rough parts of town. I want you to go where no one else wants to go. And I want you to invite all of them, all the folks you're going to find there, all the beggars, all the homeless, all those who have nothing to contribute to the feast. They're not even going to show up with a wedding gift. And I want you to invite them to come in. That my house might be full with the very kinds of folks that the popular people would despise. That there might be beggars at the king's table. This is the way the welcome has been extended to us. But until you see yourself as a beggar at the king's table, you will never understand what it's like to extend that invitation to others. Tim Keller said, it's only as we understand that we are accepted by Christ and live in response to that, rather than living in order to be accepted by Him, that we will accept others. See, that's the way the gospel works. It's not I'm trying to work my way to the King's invitation. I'm never going to make it. It's not I'm trying to be good enough or smart enough, or get enough, not enough people to like me. Yeah, it's never going to happen that way. That's why salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. It's the free invitation of God. And yet we find ourselves falling back into this place where we think we've got to earn an invitation to the feast when He has already set a name card at your place and beckons you to come. But not just to come. See, here's where we miss it, church. We think it's enough that we've been invited to come sit at the king's table and to feast with him. We miss the greater reality that that invitation was not just for us. But it was given that we might extend it to others 
We're going to come back to that thought. Just tuck that away for a few minutes. Philippians chapter 2 shows us the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Hold on to these attitudes. Which he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've already been given this. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, this mind was already imparted to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, you've already been given the ability to do this. You just got to act on it. Have this mind among yourselves. Though he was in the form of God, God in the flesh came to dwell among us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And his death on the cross was accomplished so that the invitation might be extended to beggars like us. Now let's see what we do with this. Verses 8 through 13. We see our encouragement from the gospel. And the encouragement is going to spur us on outside of ourselves. The encouragement is going to move us forward to the place where we realize that the invitation to the king's table was meant to be more than just to secure your seat. Let's look at it together. We're going to see again, he keeps pointing us back to Christ. He's going to remind us of some things about Jesus that will show us what our role is in these things before we finish. Look at verses 8 and 9. For I tell you, he says, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. The circumcised were the Jewish people. Salvation was first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. And then we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it was, the Jews were meant to be the conduit through which the gospel would go forth. I tell you that he became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. All, and Paul writes it in another place, all the promises of God find their yes, find their amen in him. To the glory of God. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. They are not fulfilled in our self-imposed righteousness. They are not feel, fulfilled in us trying to be good people. They are not fulfilled in anything that we have done. They're all fulfilled in Christ. One of those promises we find in Genesis chapter 12, God meets up with a man named Abram, who we later know as Abraham. God changes his name as he changes his life. He says, Go, Abram, from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And listen to what God promises. Here's promise number one. And I will make of you a great nation. Abraham is 75 and has no kids. And God says, I'm going to bring from you out of you a great nation. And he waits 25 years to bring forth the offspring that would be number one among that nation that was to come that we now know as the people of Israel. But I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. All you got to do is go follow me in faith. And I will bless you, Abraham, and make your name great. None of us would know Abraham at all if it were not for this fact that God had promised. 
to make his name great. So much so that if you've been around the church any amount of time, I hope you heard of Abraham. We sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them and so are you. Let's just praise the Lord. That's a good VBS song. If you haven't heard it, go to Miss Jeannie. She'll help you out. I'll bless you and make your name great, but here's the purpose. Don't miss this. Don't miss this because in the American church today, we have a wrong idea about blessing. We have a wrong idea about blessing. We have come to believe that God blesses us in order to bless us. That that's the end goal. Whereas blessing was always meant to be, it's always been meant to be a conduit. It's always meant to be a means to an end. Let me show you. I will bless you and make your name great so that, here's the purpose statement, so that you will get a blessing, right? No, so that you'll be a blessing. That's a whole different thing. Man, we pray all the time to get a blessing. How many of us are praying regularly to be a blessing? You say, what does that mean? We'll keep reading. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here's what it means to be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's what God's chosen to do, and he still operates in this way. Same God yesterday, today, and forever. God's way is to choose for himself a group of folks, in this case Abraham and his descendants, that he would bless that they might then subsequently be a blessing to everyone else. You say, who else? Everyone. So when Jesus talks about the neighbor in the Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? Everyone. You say, well, who's everyone? Everyone. Every person, all the seven billion people on this planet, and he has called his church, now known as the descendants of Abraham. Jesus said, you're Abraham's descendants if you walk by faith as he did. Abraham was looking forward in faith to the promised Messiah that now we now look back upon and see what he did for us and trust. And then he's saying, see, that's why you're children of Abraham. Not that you're Jewish by nationality, but you are Jewish by faith. You are walking in the same faith that Abraham walked in, which was faith in Christ. Faith in what he has done. And the purpose of that faith is that we might be blessed to be a blessing. I told you last week, we were saved in order to serve. We were set free in order to serve others. That was Romans 14, Romans 15. You've been blessed by God, not as an end result. You need to get this. You've been blessed by God so that you might be a blessing to others. This gift of salvation that you have through faith in Jesus Christ was not meant for you alone. If the invitation to the king's table stops with you, you've missed the point. I'm not saying God's going to reject you. He will still welcome you at the table. But you've missed the greater blessing, which is then to be able to go out from the king's table. To go out from the king's table and to go yourself into the highways and byways, into the dark alleys, into the places where no one else wants to go and invite those who are just like you in the darkness of their sin, lost and wandering without God and without hope in this world and to draw them to the king's table yourself to say, hey, come and meet the king. He invited me to come and to dwell in his presence and he wants you to come as well. 
That's what the gospel calls us to. Not to sit and stew in the sanctuary until Jesus comes back. But to go out with this gospel that all the families of the earth might be blessed. Here's the purpose. Look at verses 9 through 11. The purpose is this. That Christ calls all people to voice God's praise. He is a global God. He is a global God who created all the peoples of the earth and has a plan and a purpose for them as well. Look what happens here in these verses. It's so powerful. He begins to quote from the Old Testament four different times here. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, and from the Psalms. Four different passages in the Old Testament. But listen to what's being said here. As it is written... That means the Old Testament says, that's the, that's the way you need to see that. As it is written, the Old Testament says, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, verse 10, and again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, verse 12, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will all the Gentiles, and here's our key word, have assurance in Christ. Know that they know that they know that they're saved, rescued by the gospel, given the invitation to the king's table that they might invite others to come as well. But notice what he's doing here. It's written God's got a plan for the Gentiles. Again, God's got a plan for the Gentiles. Again, God's got a plan for the Gentiles. Again, God's got a plan for the Gentiles. Again and again and again, he is reaffirming that while God has chosen for himself a people in the Old Testament days known as Israel, he has chosen for himself a people. The purpose of that choosing was not just for them. Church, are you hearing it? We so miss this in the church today. We are no different than Old Testament Israel that squandered their blessing when they thought the buck stopped with them. When they heard God has a purpose for the Gentiles, they rejected it. Surely he couldn't love people like that. Not realizing that the very people that they were accusing of being beyond the loving grasp of God were the same sorts of people they had once been. Church, please don't forget what God rescued you from. For some in this room, He rescued you from self-righteousness. From thinking that you could do enough, earn enough, be enough to be worthy of God's favor. For some in this room, He rescued you from that. For some in this room, He rescued you from sins of addiction of exalting, so maybe it was a substance, maybe it was a relationship, maybe it was workaholism, whatever it was, but you had exalted something else as God in your life. And the one true and living God came rushing in to your life to show you the reality that you were wasting your life on that which would merit nothing, and you were rescued from your idolatry in that moment. For some of you in this room, You were rescued from anxiety, from constantly the worry that you would never be good enough, 
that you would never be lovable, that you would never amount to anything. And the Lord God who gave you life and breath and every good thing opened up your eyes to be able to see what you could not see. To hear what you could not hear. To receive what you had no capacity to receive. Don't forget it. Don't ever allow yourself to forget what you were rescued from. Because the moment that you do, the moment that you forget what you were rescued from, you will begin to turn from your rescuer in self-sufficiency. Praise be to God. What He continues to do in the lives of believers, though, is He keeps bringing you back to that place. He keeps gently reminding you, hey, remember who you once were. Not, not to beat you down. This is the great thing about God. Not to beat you down with it, but He will remind you of who you once were so that you don't get the big head and continue to lean back into His grace. Christ calls all people to voice God's praise. One thing that God is doing here in this writing in verses 9 through 11, 9 through 12, Douglas Moo described it so well. He said, Paul, he cites every part of the Old Testament. They divided the Old Testament up into three sections, the writings, the law, and the prophets. That's the way that they understood the whole Old Testament and to be composed of those three parts, the writings, the law, and the prophets. He, he cites every part in the writings, the Psalms, the law, he cites Deuteronomy. The prophets, he cites the prophet Isaiah. He says he does all this to show that inclusion of Gentiles with Jews in the praise of God has always, always, always been part of God's purpose. By the way, in case you hadn't got word, we're Gentiles. Now, somebody in this room, you may have Jewish background. Praise be to God if that, if that is true. But I would say that most of us, if not all in this room, are Gentiles. We are those who would be excluded from the promises of God if it had not been for the fact that God's promise was always for us. He chose and blessed the Jews so that all the nations might be blessed. And He chose and blessed the church for the same purpose. Don't miss it, church. Because if the buck of God's blessing stops with us, we've missed the greater blessing. Let me give you three more things and we'll finish up. First of all, verse 12, Christ has promised He will rule over the nations with power. The babe born in Bethlehem will one day be the king on the white horse who comes in victory over all of the nations. All those who have mocked him, all those who have spoken against him, all those who have lived in outright rebellion against the king of kings will one day bow the knee before him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king. Some will do so through gritted teeth, but they will make the proclamation. And perhaps today, perhaps today you are in this place and in your sin-soaked, rebellious heart, you are rejecting the knowledge of God that He is Jesus the Christ. I would urge you today, there will come a day when you will stand before, in fact, I fall, believe you will fall on your face 
before Him and you will confess His Lordship. But if you wait until that day, it will be too late for it to merit anything for you in terms of your eternal salvation. I urge you, make confession of Christ as Lord today. He will one day rule over the nations. Two more things. First of all, Christ calls us to a faith which gives us peace. Christ calls us to a faith which gives us peace. Listen to this final prayer. It's so beautiful. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, there's our theme, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So what he's saying here is, here's my prayer for you, that the product of your faith, that the product of your faith in Jesus Christ would be joy and peace. By the way, if you bought a faith that didn't produce joy and peace in your life, you might want to go check the warranty on that deal. Okay, if you bought into a faith that did not produce joy and peace, if you bought into the kind of faith that's causing you to lean back into legalism where you're trying to earn the favor of God continually, check the warranty on that deal. Make an exchange today. If you bought the kind of faith where you walk around all your days glum and downtrodden, having not, not living in the hope that we have in the gospel, if that's the kind of faith that you bought into, make a trade. Turn that sucker in. Trade it in on a better model. Because he's saying here, the kind of faith that we have, the kind of belief that we have, produces joy and peace. And if you don't have that then perhaps you don't have Christ. And please don't hear that sounding harsh. But there is a false faith. The Bible says even the demons believe. They have a form of faith. They have an emotional reaction to the Word of God. It's a reaction of fear. Even the demons believe and tremble. They're not rejoicing in the gospel. They're rejecting it. And by the way, you can reject the gospel in your self-righteousness. You can reject the gospel in trying to earn the favor of God by being a good boy or a nice girl. Or you can embrace the gospel that says His invitation is free. The beggar is welcome at the king's table. Speaking of peace, Romans 5. Therefore, another one of those therefore passages. Behold, pay attention. Something important is here. Since we have been justified by faith. It's done. It's done. Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. By the way, if you have peace with God, you will have peace in every other area of your life. A peace that passes all understanding. If you don't have peace with God, you will have peace in no other area of your life. If your life is is full of turmoil and drama and a lack of peace, it's probably because you're not dwelling in the peace with God that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, He says, we've obtained access, welcome. We've obtained a welcome to the throne of God by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, and here's our word. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in our hope. See, far too many believers today are lamenting in their hope. 
Well, we know Jesus is coming back for us. That'll be enough. We're the bunch of sad sacks walking around on the earth when we ought to be the most joyous people the world has ever known. And I'm not just talking about walking around with some stupid grin on your face all the time where people think you're nuts. There are hard things in this life. There are difficult things that bring great grief to us, and yet, and yet, in the midst of that grief, may there be an inexpressible joy that encompasses our lives. You see, how is that even possible only in Jesus? If you don't know what I'm talking about today, a joy in the midst of suffering, as he talks about in the next few verses in Romans 5, if you don't know that kind of a joy, I've got to introduce you to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and you've never endured anything like his cross. Finally, this morning, as a means of empowering us for all that he's called us to, Christ imparts to us the Holy Spirit's power. Man, I love what he prays there in John 17. and tells, tells his disciples, hey guys, I got to get out of here. I'm getting ready to leave. And they're freaking out, man. Where are you going, Jesus? Can we come with you? Like, this is not good. We don't want you to go anywhere. I got to go, he says, so that I can send you the comforter. So I'm going to go, I got to leave so I can send something better. You say, what would be better than walking and talking with Jesus himself? The Bible answers that and says, the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Old Testament days, man, we just finished reading the book of Judges in the Bible Project. Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit came and went in people's lives. It says of Samson, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him, but then it departed from him. The life of Saul, the anointed king of God, that the Holy Spirit came upon him, but it departed from him. You never have to worry, believer, hear this. You never have to worry that the Holy Spirit is going to leave you. You never have to worry about that. You never have to pray that prayer in Psalm 51 where David, in contrition of of his sin, prayed, Father, take not your Holy Spirit from me. You never have to pray that prayer in in that way. Now, sometimes we experience a lack of the Holy Spirit because we've allowed sin in our lives. Sometimes we we experience a lack of the subjective experience of the Spirit and relational closeness with the Father. But if you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you never have to worry that God is going to remove that. He has promised, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And the seal of that guarantee is the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. And the Holy Spirit comes to bring power, but power for a purpose. Acts 1.8 But you, church... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. And ever since, all the people of God have been rejoicing in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and knowing that He is within us. And you will be my witnesses. You'll be my martyrs. Those first men who were hearing these words, all but one gave their lives to witness for Christ. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right where you're at right now. 
right in your hometown, in Judea, in the outlying areas, in Samaria, in that place that you don't want to go but know that I'm going to call you to, and to the very ends of the earth. Why? Because God just likes to send us on long, faraway vacations? No, because He loves the nations. Don't miss this. If you miss this part of the Christian life, you're missing one of the greatest blessings of our salvation. If you're living with a buck stops here blessing in your life, let me tell you today, you were blessed with salvation. If you are living in light of the gospel this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I need you to understand this morning, I'm pleading with you, please trade in your buck stops here blessing and take up this understanding this gospel empowered understanding that you were blessed in order to bless others you were never meant to be a tank of blessing you were meant to be a conduit of blessing and so again come back to the king's table and understand that the invitation issued in your name was not just for you. Man, we can get so self-centered in our salvation. You were saved and invited to the table to taste and see how good the Lord is that you might then get up from the table and go to the highways and byways and find the lost and the lonely the worthless and the wretched. To find those the world had written off. And to invite them to come in. Come and meet this man who changed my life. Can I tell you about Jesus? He's done for me what I could never do for myself. You were blessed to be a blessing. We'll end here. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the end of the story. And I'm not just saying the end of the story of the Bible. I'm saying the end of the story of your life, whether you're trusting in Jesus right now or not. The end of the story of your life is that there will be a day when you will come before the Lord Jesus Christ and you will confess, you will agree that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you may very well do so through gritted teeth, clinging to the rebellion of your sin as He speaks, depart from me, I never knew you. I would desire that for no one in this room, no one on this planet. But the King is inviting you in to come, to come because you're welcome, to come because He has made the way by the blood of His cross, to come near, to come to the King's table, to take up that invitation, and then to go out and invite others to do the same. Church, I pray that we would begin to see these Sunday mornings as a dinner date with the King. 
but that they would spur us on to get back out into the highways and byways to go look for the lost and lonely to understand that your invitation to the table was not just for you he welcomed you so that you then could welcome others and you do that through the gospel